Welcome to the third season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Please note, this episode contains graphic content that some listeners may find disturbing. Please listen at your own discretion. Samuel Wiggins grew up in Compton, one of the oldest cities in Los Angeles County in California. He was drafted into the Army and fought in the Vietnam War in the late 1960s. When he returned to the U.S., he took in his young nephew Ramon, who was nine and had lost both his parents. Ramon told the Whittier Daily News that Sam raised him and that he was a very loving man. Sam went to college and later worked at Boeing, purchasing aerospace parts. Along the way, Sam had a son, Michael, who was married to Michelle, and they had three children. They talked on the phone a few times a month, and he often visited them in Texas. Sam settled into a house on Meadow Falls Drive in Diamond Bar. After he retired, he enjoyed spending his time gardening. He got to know his neighbors and joined them for holidays and barbecues. Sam was a lifelong bachelor and told family members he'd never get married. But as he settled into his golden years, his stance on marriage softened, particularly when he met Carmen Montenegro online. In her late 40s, the couple began dating. Carmen felt she'd hit the jackpot. Sam had money to spare. And she liked money, especially other people's money. The couple dated for a couple years. There were bumps in the road, like when she would steal small things from his home, including DVDs. But he was in love with her and looked the other way. Sam helped Carmen and her family out financially. She and her daughter moved in with him for about a year and he bought her daughter a car and helped pay for her to go to college. Although Carmen moved into her own apartment in nearby Riverside, the couple continued dating. They made a cute couple, both tiny in stature. He had bought an engagement ring and planned on proposing. But what Sam didn't know is that he wasn't the only man in Carmen's life. She had more than one sugar daddy. Her other boyfriend was 86-year-old Carmen Marquez. At the beginning of March 2011, Michelle called her father-in-law. Sam mentioned he'd planned to visit them in Texas, but that Carmen had insisted he leave his car and money for her. But Sam wasn't comfortable with that. In particular, he never loaned his car to anyone, so he cancelled his trip. 
Ramon didn't like the way Carmen treated his uncle, and one day when he called Sam, they ended up getting into an argument over it. When Ramon didn't hear from Sam for a couple weeks, he figured he was just being stubborn. Court records reported that on April 20th, Sam's landlord stopped by the house to pick up the rent check. Sam introduced him to his girlfriend Carmen and said that she would be moving in with him. Four days later, it was Easter Sunday, and Michelle called Sam, but there was no answer. It is thought that is the day that Carmen and Sam got into an argument, and that he changed his mind about her moving in and ended their relationship. Carmen reacted in anger, grabbed a knife from the kitchen, and stabbed Sam 24 times. Then realizing what she had done, she panicked. She had to get rid of Sam's body, but how? She wasn't a big person, and moving his body all at once would be too much for her. So she devised a plan to split it up into manageable pieces. She severed his head, legs, and arms from his torso, cutting them into a size she could carry. In Sam's backyard, she found extra plant pots. She placed his head in one pot, arms in another, covered them with dirt and a plant. But there weren't any pots big enough for his torso and legs. So she carried the rest of Sam, piece by piece, out to his car. She drove to her cousin Matthew's home in nearby Ontario and told him that she was going to do some gardening. Matthew shrugged and Carmen marched to the backyard with Sam. She dug deep holes and buried him. Carmen returned to Sam's, washed the walls the best she could, and cleaned up the house. But Sam's blood had seeped into the fibers of the carpet, and no amount of scrubbing would remove the stains. The next day, Carmen transferred $1,300 from Sam's savings account to his checking account. And to ensure it didn't look suspicious, she broke it down into three small transfers. The following day, Carmen drove to Sam's bank and withdrew more money. She hired a couple men to rip out the carpet and replaced it. Then she packed the bloodstained carpet into a box and called her friend Encido and asked for his help storing the box. He picked it up and took it to his friend David's house. David wasn't curious and didn't bother to open it. Over the next few days, Michelle continued to phone Sam numerous times, and again, he didn't answer. Ramon also phoned his uncle several times. Most times, the phone just rang. But a few times, Carmen did answer. She gave him different stories, since Sam was in the hospital or out of town. Sunday, May 8th was Mother's Day, and Carmen decided to pay her cousin Eugenio a visit. 
She drove the 30 minutes to Bell Gardens and arrived just after 9 p.m. She handed him two potted plants. A few days later, Carmen borrowed Sam's car because she didn't like burning her own gas. She drove 20 minutes to nearby Glendora and used Sam's credit card at a gas station within view of a video surveillance camera. On May 17th, Sam's landlord stopped by the house to pick up the rent. But this time, Carmen answered the door and gave him the check. A couple days went by and Michelle tried phoning Sam again and still couldn't reach him. It had been 25 days. Michelle phoned the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department and requested they do a welfare check. Officers responded and knocked on the doors of Sam's neighbors, but none of them had seen Sam in weeks. But they had noticed Carmen driving his car and coming and going in the middle of the night. A few more days went by, and Sam's neighbor Araceli phoned his house. She left a message insisting he call her back, or she would contact the police. The very next day, Carmen returned Araceli's call, saying that Sam was out of town on personal business and would call her when he returned. Then Carmen transferred money between Sam's accounts again and withdrew $500. Sylvia, another neighbor, mentioned she had noticed someone moving potted plants around in his yard and thought it strange. Then she saw Carmen driving Sam's car. Carmen was feeling pressure from the police, Sam's family, and the neighbors. She phoned Michelle and claimed that Sam was having a problem with drugs and she was trying to convince him to get help. Sam had been missing for 30 days when Ramon stopped by his uncle's home. He noticed the pool was empty, which was unusual. Then he spotted Sam's favorite pair of shoes, which made him doubt Carmen's story of him traveling. He knew he wouldn't leave home without those shoes. Ramon contacted police and filed a missing persons report. L.A. County Sheriff's Detective Diane Harris phoned Carmen. She advised her that Sam had been reported missing. Carmen claimed that she'd just seen Sam the day before, hanging out in a park doing drugs with someone named Emmett. She assured the detective that she'd have Sam contact her. But Detective Harris didn't wait for Sam's call. She showed up at his home with a warrant. The search turned up nothing. There was no sign of a struggle and nothing seemed to be missing. But she did notice an empty slot and a knife holder in the kitchen. The next day, Ramon returned to his uncle's home. He knew there was something seriously wrong when he spotted blood splatter on the walls in two of the rooms. He contacted the sheriff's office and they returned. Three days later, Carmen hired two men 
and they drove 20 minutes to her cousin Matthew's home. She offered her cousin a hundred bucks if he, his girlfriend, and his brother would leave for an hour. They jumped at the chance for some free cash and took off. But they didn't get far when they realized that Carmen hadn't paid them. So they turned around and went back. When they arrived, they could see in the distance one of the men digging in the backyard. Carmen saw them coming and panicked. She started pacing back and forth, then approached Matthew and blurted out, I'll give you guys like $5,000 each to help me. Help me get rid of him. I need to get rid of it. Matthew wondered what she was talking about. He and his brother continued to walk towards the backyard. Carmen ordered them to grab a garbage can from near the garage. Matthew retrieved the garbage can and headed to the backyard, just in time to see Carmen removing dirt from Sam's body. Then she heaved him into the garbage can. Matthew's stomach churned, and he lost it. Matthew, his girlfriend and brother, hightailed it out of there. Then he called his mother and the police. Meanwhile, Carmen grabbed the garbage can and dragged it after her as she followed Matthew out of the yard and into the street, begging him to come back. Neighbors first noticed the commotion and noise. Then they noticed a smell, an indescribable stench, and called police. Officer Michael Gonzalez responded to the call. As he drove his patrol car down the street, Matthew flagged him down. Carmen had trudged 600 feet down the sidewalk. She was covered in dirt with a garbage can in tow. Matthew pointed at her. As the officer approached her, he could smell the foul order of death. Carmen froze and stared at him. A long, blank stare. Carmen was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. The news made headlines in Los Angeles. Police learned of the box Carmen stored at David's and retrieved it. Inside, they found blood-soaked carpet that matched the carpet in Sam's home. Carmen's cousin Eugenio called police to tell them about the potted plants she had dropped off. Officers responded, and buried beneath the plants, the coroner found parts of Sam. And in the garbage can, along with Sam's torso and legs, they found evidence. Latex gloves, a zip tie, and a syringe. A forensic search of Sam's home turned up blood splatter on the bedroom door that matched Sam. They learned about Carmen's boyfriend and paid him a visit. He handed over Carmen's passport and four bank cards that belonged to Sam.
Police seized both Carmen and Sam's vehicles. In the trunk of Sam's, they found a bottle of bleach. A forensic pathologist performed an autopsy on Sam and determined that he had a laceration above his right eye and that he had been stabbed 22 times in the back and twice in the chest, puncturing his lung. Carmen denied being in a romantic relationship with Sam, but rather that he had sexually assaulted her. An assault that she did not report to police, go to the hospital, or tell her family. Instead, she confided in another boyfriend, 85-year-old Jacques Lefebvre. Carmen pled not guilty. In January 2014, a jury had been selected when her defense lawyer sought a mistrial, which was granted by a judge. Her trial was rescheduled and held in August. Carmen continued to deny that she and Sam were in a relationship, and she pointed the finger at Jacques, who by now was deceased and could not testify. She claimed that Sam had assaulted her in early May, and that a few days after, she confided in Jacques, and later saw the frail man in his mid-80s driving Sam's car, and that a week or so later, she and Jacques went to Sam's house, and that's when she discovered his body, and that Jacques had killed Sam. She testified that she did not report it to police, because she feared they would take Jacques away. Carmen admitted to hiring men to remove the bloody carpet and that she drove Sam's car. She also confessed to using Sam's bank cards, claiming that he would have wanted her to have whatever she needed. She also admitted that she'd forged his rent check and admitted to lying about Sam being involved with drugs. She claimed that when she went to her cousin's home and unearthed Sam's remains, she had planned on turning them over to police. After three days of deliberations, the jury found Carmen guilty of first-degree murder. She was sentenced to 25 years, plus an additional year for the gravity of the crime. Carmen is being held at the Central California Women's Facility and is eligible for parole in August 2029. At that time, she may go before the parole board to determine if she should be released. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with Let's Talk and More True Crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Gary Tyson. He thrived on danger. Sentenced to 25 years for murder, the prison walls couldn't hold him. His sons idolized their father and broke him out. On the run, they took six lives before Gary disappeared in the desert. If you're dying to hear more, Past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. 
We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or MurderIn20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.